I agree wholeheartedly. And you know, most, I was a sex worker for about five or six years of my life. Most of my clients were far right-wing, white, older, male conservatives. And most of the time, here's what I always thought was fascinating. Most of the time, all they wanted to do was talk. They didn't even really want to have sex. And when they did want to have sex, it was very specific kind of sex that they wanted. So these people are trapped, trapped in a in 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 a male patriarchy that is uh, rigid, just well, and compounded by how how we behave as Americans. It's very westernized. My guest today is the lovely Alexander Billings, who I've chatted with on Instagram off and on for several years, but this is our first chance to actually meet. Alexander, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for asking me, my friend. My pleasure. So I want to start it off by quoting the paragraph with which you open your recent memoir, This Time for Me. You go, I lie. I'm not one of those liars who twitches or sweats or panics when they lie. I'm a very, very, very good liar. The problem is not that I lie. The problem is that I have a hard time noting, admitting, and living in the truth. Even when faced with it, the truth eludes me. I much prefer the world I create to the world I inhabit. If I don't like the way the story's going, I simply change it. The realization that you couldn't be open about your proclivity for dressing in women's clothes helped you become a master at lying. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? And in particular, how much did that ability contribute to your success later as an entertainer and as an actor? <laughs> wow, what a great question. Uh, first of all, I've never had anybody read anything back that I wrote before. You know, I don't. It's so funny about that book because, because it was really difficult to write, I have to be honest. It was not, all, I had all kinds of wonderful people tell me when I wrote that book, oh, this is, is going to be so cathartic. You're really going to. And it was traumatic and horrible, I have to be honest. But I don't, re there's a whole bunch of it I don't remember. But the thing I do remember is the beginning because I, I struggled with how to start it. Starting a book is just a nightmare and a half. And once I figured out what my life was, it was really easy to begin. And the idea of lying is so ingrained into who I am, meaning I come from a family of liars <clears throat> who, if you tell, if you ask them, will swear that they're truth tellers up and down, that they're the most honest people on the planet. So isn't that more de denial than lying? I think that's exactly right. Yes. But the thing is, if you ask them, so listen, where did you come from? They'll tell you some fabulous story that has absolutely nothing to do with where they came from. Not a clue. And and I mean, did you just come from the store? No, I came from a safari and <laughs> I met a couple of zebra. And I mean, it's it's a whole. But we're great storytellers, great storytellers. And I think the term lie gets misconstrued, especially in art. People who aren't artists tend to think that actors are great liars when in actuality, the opposite is really true. You have to, which is why I was such a terrible actor for a, a very long time. And which is why, to be honest with you right now, I'm sort of a mediocre actor. <laughs> You know, to be honest, I'm a much better teacher. And the reason that's true is because I've lied for so long, I'm really good at spotting it. So when I'm in the room as a teacher and I have other actors and they're lying or they're not speaking what's true, I can see it in a second because I see myself. Well, that leads up to a whole other question, because when you're yeah. acting, you're putting yourself into something that really isn't you and pretending and imagining it is you. How do you how do you successfully do that? You're, 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 you're partly, you're, you're part, you're on track. Right. Uh, you're on track with, with a lot of people believe what you believe in actuality. What an actor does is an actor goes into a situation that is imaginary. So all of us do that as children, right? I'm going to be the bank robber and you're going to be the whatever. And we're going to, we're going to play these things, but we have to believe we're in the bank. If the bank isn't real, then the scene's not going to work. But I'm still me, right? I'm still going to be me, and I'm going to react the way I would as the bank robber, and you're going to react the way you would as the teller or the policeman or whatever. But the imaginary circumstances, 
have to make sense to us. So what an actor does is go into an imaginary circumstance, like I'm in a magical forest, and they have to imagine that that's true. Then, as themselves, they speak these words that the author wrote. So there's a lot more truth to acting than there is actual lying. We just went to class, by the way, kids. <laughs> Audience, you got it for free. Yeah, listen, that'll be $450, <laughs> honey. So um, in your memoir, you describe being a young boy of five or six who began dressing up in your mom's clothing because it gave you joy. Do you recall how you first began to feel drawn to women's clothing or to women in general? What Was that memory of that first time that you kind of got drawn there vivid? Yes, very. I remember, uh, I don't remember how old I was. I was very, very, very young, which always leads me to conversations about um, trans youth and healthcare. Because I remember probably five or six years old, I was very young. And my mother's closet was, felt like a, a room full of talismans, just golden treasures. And I just loved shiny things. And I'm 62 years old, so I come from a time when, when gender was very specific. Men did this and women did that. Men dressed like this and women dressed like that. It was very binary. I mean, down the line. And boys aspired to be the perfect men. Right. That's exactly right. And the uh, leaders, the guides, and the ones with all the answers. And that's still true. We, we all contribute to that mythology. But it, that was very clear in the, in the late 1960s. And so the my mother's closet for me was a, a, a sense of freedom because there were so many other choices. My dad's closet was full of brown and black socks. It just never made any sense to me. So, you know, the why is really interesting. Why is that true? It, it's genetic. It's environmental. It's a combination. I really have no idea. All I know is that has always, always been true. As I got older, that sort of went away. Sparkly stuff right now to me seems like a lot of work. So I sort of, I sort of jeans and t-shirt it most of the time, which is interesting. So basically it was really a visceral magnetic gravity. I think it's about an attraction. Queer people have an attraction to things that allow you to be seen, like from a distance. So we really, right, like queer humans, we really want to shake the mountain. That's innately what we do just as a culture. So I think a lot of that has to do with our adornment of the female gender, of the of the female of our species, that we adorn that. I think we also refuse to shortchange our joy. You know how you're supposed to fit into the world as you get older and kind of Damp, dampen your enthusiasm and your brilliance. Yeah. And we don't. We, we're, we're drawn to fashion and entertainment and things like that where you can be yourself. I think that's right. You talked about how a junior high school tormentor, Sam, became your secret first lover. Yet, he continued to publicly make fun of you. I then noticed later on you referred to when you were doing the kind of drag shows on the Gold Coast, I believe, in Chicago, and you had a, a Often these kind of big jock types come in with their little girlfriends and they would kind of, you know, cheer and applaud and everything. And then you'd overhear them sometimes on their way up talking about a chick with a dick. And yet that same type were often the ones that were drawn most to you when you were out tricking. Right? They're your customers. And so this hypocrisy, this duplicity, this two-faced, you know, put down on the surface and publicly, but somehow being drawn to what is that all about? Why does it work that way? Well, that's, that's the question of the ages, isn't it? You know, <clears throat> I find that throughout my life, the thing you profess to hate the most is most likely the thing you miss. And that's true of all of us. I try really hard throughout my life, and this has taken practice and sometimes hourly practice. I try throughout my life when people behave badly, to say to myself, how many times have you betrayed, lied, manipulated, stolen, um, said things that weren't true, said unkind things, behaved in ways that you know, you're know you not proud of? How many times have you done that to myself? And then I try to look at these people through that lens because what they think and have been taught to hate is exactly what they want to go towards. And you know, I say that from personal experience. That's been true of me as well. 
And just in the myriad of lives that I've led, I've noticed that those people usually end up on my front doorstep. And they're in, they're, they're in terrible peril. There was this video that went around. I don't know if you saw this. You know, I'm uh, addicted to social media, addicted to it. I can't stay off it. I love it. And there was a video that went around uh, that went viral of this man, cisgender, white, probably in his 30s, early 30s or late 20s. And he's going around Target and he's destroying all of the pride signs. He's taking them off of displays and throwing them on the floor and crushing them and and laughing. And it's very disturbing, odd, very strange behavior. And someone, of course, is following him and filming all of this. And he's saying all kinds of homophobic and transphobic rhetoric on the way. Well, somebody got a hold of this man. You know, the internet is forever, kids. Remember that. <laughs> and somebody got a hold of this unfortunate young man and did some research and found him on Grinder. And not only found him, his profile on Grinder, but screenshotted one of his conversations that he had with a gay young man and it was very sexually explicit and they outed him and they posted that alongside the video of him crushing all of these signs i'm not saying that that should have been shouldn't have been done however the thing that was upsetting and the thing that was so telling was people in our own community pointing and laughing at this young man now here's a man who was obviously in an enormous amount of pain who was lost steeped in homophobia, public humiliation, and shame. And if anybody understands all that list of criteria, it's queer people. And I was shocked at some of their, not, not everybody, but some of these people's behavior. And I went, on, I went online and I made a video and I said, stop doing that. Stop it. I don't mind you posting this video. That's absolutely what should have happened. Speak the truth. But don't behave the way they behave. Because this human isn't behaving this way because he hates us. He doesn't hate us. He doesn't know us. How can he hate somebody you don't know? He hates himself. He hates himself. And he hates what he loves. That's what's going on. So that's what we have to remember. Now, look, I'm not saying that we have to be kind to these people or nice to these people or forgive these people. But we don't have to do any of that. Behave, react how you need to react and be safe. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, don't misunderstand their hatred. See them for what they are and understand that the way we treat other people and speak about other people is the way they're going to behave. A perfect illustration of that is the number of, of congressmen, usually Republican, who are so vocally anti-LGBTQ, yet are often themselves then caught in situations that reveal, in fact, their own penchant for homosexual activity, right? Barney Frank, uh, the former congressman, was my last interviewee on this podcast series. Really? And, he, and he developed uh, the Barney Frank rule when he was in office, which was you do not out any politician unless they're harming the community. Then, then it's perfectly okay to do that. I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. And you know, most I was a sex worker for about five or six years of my life. Most of my clients were far right-wing, white, older, male conservatives. And most of the time, here's what I always thought was fascinating. Most of the time, all they wanted to do was talk. They didn't even really want to have sex. And when they did want to have sex, it was very specific kind of sex that they wanted. So these people are trapped, trapped in a, in, in, in a male patriarchy that is uh, rigid, just well, and compounded by how, how we behave as Americans. It's very westernized. I saw somewhere, maybe it was in your book, maybe it was somewhere else, an aphorism, a kind of a witty way of saying it, which I don't remember. It basically said that if you are a, a sex worker and you are trans, you're not going to make any money unless you haven't had sex, sexual reassignment surgery, unless you're a chick with a dick. Hmm. So in fact, they're, they're kind of attracted to the thing that they're repulsed by. Is that part of the same thing? Or is it it's exactly the same thing. The thing, that, the thing you profess to hate is most likely the thing you want the most. So... You know, it's the thing that I say in the room to my students, which is the thing you're saying the loudest in the in the room is the thing you need to hear the most, especially when students go, I don't understand it. I'm like, mm, well, you do. So, you know, far right wing conservative human beings are not taught self-evaluation. 
That's not what they're taught in their homes. They're taught to stay the course. And, and they've confused faith with fact. They don't understand, in my experience, that faith requires a belief in the unknown, a belief in the unknown, not a proof in the unknown. That's what faith is. Fact is scientific, mechanical, and requires an equation. So when you're talking about a mythological ideology, I believe in God, I believe in Allah, I believe in Buddha, I believe in whatever, I believe in the ground, I believe in science, whatever the thing is that we can't see, if it's a fact, you run around and you try to convince everybody it's true, right? Two plus two is four. No, it's not. Oh, no, no, no. Yes, it is. And let me tell you why. And they've confused a divine spark, a sense of possibility, the absolute unknown, the infinite, with a scientific equation. It's very sad. You described a panoply of sexual hijinks that you got up to during high school. With both hijinks. <laughs> you said hijinks. <laughs> I could also say hanky-panky. Nice. <laughs> it's really good. How did you forage so fearlessly for sex? Were you unafraid of potential consequences? Or were you already such an outsider that the risks didn't seem outsized? <laughs> what a great question. Uh, I never thought about it before. You know, I don't know. I think I, <laughs> this is, this is, this is a, a gift and a curse. If some if something strikes me, if something hits me in my belly, I'll just do it. I don't care who's next to me or whose hand I'm holding or what road I'm on or what light is shining in front of me. I'll just do it. And if it's a light that's coming towards me, I sort of cross my fingers that it's not another oncoming train, you know? <laughs> I'll just go. So I really think that's the way 90% of my life has been spent that way. I just go. Gut instinct. I think so. I I fell in love with people. I know this sounds sort of new agey, but it's true for me. I fell in love with people. And, and if I love you, I want to be intimate with you. That's just sort of what happens to me. That's the way my motor runs. I, I, I don't know any other way to explain it. It's a really good question. Well, it's, it's just so diametrically opposite to my own upbringing where I was one of those kids that wanted to be the best little boy and get all A's and be perfect for the world. And part of that was not doing anything with other boys. And so I resisted. And yet I was demisexual, not knowing it. I was drawn to one person at a time. And I'd, I'd never, I never behaved that way. I never allowed myself to. So for me, the idea that you just let go and went with your instincts is is just it's unbelievable. I mean, it's, it's amazing, but that's why I wanted to understand. Well, this you, you just said something really interesting that, that I find fascinating. I hear a lot from, from human beings. And what you're talking about, what I hear you talking about is permission, right? That you didn't give yourself the permission to say, you know what? I think I'm just going to go over there for a little while and see what happens, right? Like all of us have these lists of things that we're supposed to do and check off. And we never think to turn the paper over. Or we think of it, but we wouldn't dare. Right. We wouldn't dare turn the paper <laughs> over. Give ourselves permission to just go, I wonder what's on the other side of this thing. So despite being close, you and your mother, Mimi, bumped heads repeatedly. Mm -hmm. And in the end, her need for conventionality and your need to discover your true self drove you apart almost immediately after high school. Do you believe Mimi was ever able to fully accept Alexander's emergence and Scott's disappearance? No, but I do think she was able to, in, in the short answer is no, I do think she was able to come to terms with how she felt about both of those things. And that for me was enough. You know, she, this was a woman of a very specific time. She, she, she was brought up in the 1950s for the love of Pete. So for her to be able to go to herself and say, you know, I'm angry at at my child, I'm, I'm, I'm jealous of their freedom. I'm, I'm sad because I miss my son. I'm, I'm really happy. I have a daughter and I can go shopping with, you know, I think the gift was watching her come to terms with her own feelings about my transition. I think that uh, it took a lot of guts. I thought she was able to deal with both parts of you simultaneously, really. I think so. And how she felt about that, how she navigated that. Because a lot of parents, the, I think parents make a mistake when they say, 
I need to figure out how I feel about your transition. No, you don't. My transition is none of your business. It doesn't have anything to do with you. So stay out of it. You need to figure out how you feel about it. And you need to navigate that because that's what's going to stop you and prevent you from having a relationship with me. You trigger in me a memory. Um, I had wonderful parents, <clears throat> but they were self-absorbed. And later on, my mother would say to me, I'm just so proud of how I dealt with your coming out. And I'm sitting here thinking, lady, it's not about you. You know, right? Exactly. Yeah, they love to bring things in, don't they? You know, we're having a conversation. All of a sudden, they go, "Let's back to me." I feel I'm like we're not talking about you, honey. We're not talking about you. You know, you talked about the bullying you had to deal with, which not surprising. And then you talked about actually at one point a suicide attempt, taking an overdose of Tylenol, I believe, or aspirin. and you mentioned that at the moment that you were about to complete the entire bottle, you saw three drag queens on Phil Donahue's program. Do you think that in some way held you back from finishing the task or was that just coincidental? Oh, no, that was, well, first of all, I don't believe in coincidences. I don't think those exist. I think there are lessons and gifts and we either pay attention to them or we don't. Um, I don't think, I don't think things, at least it's true in my life. I don't think things happen randomly. I don't know if there's a plan to everything, but I, when I look at our, our, our role in cosmophysics and the fact that we live on this spinning blue rock and we've never been completely destroyed by all the stuff that flies around for eons, I just don't think that's a coincidence. So <clears throat> when I saw those three women, I think that was a lifeline and a portal that I could make a choice right then and there. I either go towards it, remember the oncoming train? I either go towards it or I sit and I go back to these things. And I made a decision because what I saw looked happy and joyful and fun. And again, it was that it was that closet full of talismans. It looked shiny and sparkly and, and exciting to me. So I thought. Well, that's probably that's probably more fun than what I'm going to do now. <laughs> and because I saw myself, and this is why one of the reasons I continue to work on television and in film is because because I saw myself, I thought, oh, wait a minute. I don't have to end it. There's hope for me because there I am. So I don't believe it was random. I definitely think it was purposeful. I don't know for what purpose. I don't have that kind of insight. And I think that, again, I was very lucky to listen to my instinct. Go. As were all of us. Oh, bless your heart. So for years, your life was chaotic, filled with sex, booze, and drugs, while you also began taking hormone treatments and learning to embrace an entirely new identity. That's a lot to do all at once. Yeah, I've had a big life. <laughs> How were you able to sort out your gender identity, your sexual attraction, and your career aspirations, all amid the intense homophobia and arrival of AIDS in the 80s? Well, that kind of sounds like, you know, last Thursday, doesn't it? I mean, it, <laughs> well, it's really not that much different. I'll tell you, I, I have never said to myself, well, that's done. Let's move on to B. Like, I've never really done that. So I always feel like everything is a work in progress, that I'm still figuring out my gender. And I'm still, I love this generation. You know, I'm, I'm on to now teaching my second generation of students. I'm at that age now. And it's really exciting because this generation has grown up with technology. So their brains are so fast. And they assess so quickly and their ability to imagine and dream is unlike anything I've ever seen because everything is in the palm of their hand, everything. And they have developed a whole new vocabulary for the queer community, for gender, for identity, period. It's just fabulous. I mean, you have a million different words to pick from. And these are the type of people who will say, I feel one way at 9 a.m. and a different way at noon. It's fantastic. 
Well, if only we can imbue them with an understanding of where we've come from and what the past was about, right? Well, that's what's missing, isn't it? Well, you hit the nail right on the head. That's what's missing, isn't it? Is that this generation tends to not listen. That's what I, that was an addendum to how fabulous they are, is that, you know, they don't, they also don't shut up. I've told them that online many times, shut up, shut up for a couple of, and so for me, but for me, I, I, that journey, I don't, I don't ever remember saying to myself, that's the end of that particular road. Now I'm on to the next because I figured it out. If that ever happens, push me off the cliff. I don't, I don't want to be one of those people that's figured it out. I don't ever want to figure it out. I can understand that perspective, but let me just say, reading your book, I don't know how you or I survived or if I would have survived. You had a lot coming at you, girl. You know, I appreciate that. And I do hear that. But I have to tell you something. My story is really not that much different than most every other transgender person of my generation that you'll meet, strangely. Yeah, no, I, I've i had my education process in dealing with trans people over the last 25 years. And it it was eye-opening, let me just say. And shocking, so, isn't it? It's shocking. I, I, I want to do my part to try to help people who don't believe in or understand the concept of, that there really is something called gender dysphoria. And, you know, and my whole philosophy, not to get off on a sidetrack here, is that we can create community through storytelling. If you have empathy, if you have the ability to put yourself in another person's body and you hear their story and they hear yours, then you'll feel closer to each other, no matter how different you are. That's beautiful. I would say yes to all of that and add to that. We have to remember that all of us come from the same spark. And there's a reason that we all want and need to communicate with each other. Whether we agree with each other is inconsequential. We have a need to communicate. It's why we develop language. And the reason that's true is because we all come from the same place. So we have to, if we can, concentrate on that first. Even when we're in arguments, concentrate on the fact that we all were born from that one singular divine spark. And if we continue, if we do that, I really believe that all of the things that we argue about will dissipate and at least turn into conversation instead of just argument. What were you going to say? I'm sorry. No, no I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I I have the friends who I differ with politically, who uh, transphobic, lesbian friends, you know, et cetera. And I try to say to them, look, let's focus on our similarities. We love each other. And we're just going to have to agree to disagree when we get to those points where our worldview is different. But that doesn't have to put a barrier between us that, that prevents us from speaking, which is where the world has gone over the last five or 10 years. But if we can only keep talking to each other, we can deal with those differences. I think that's really smart. And I think it has been concentrated in our country. It is very much um, a, a westernized idea of conversation that you have to take one side, I have to take another, and there's no way we can walk towards each other. It's really disheartening. Can you explain the difference between being a female impersonator and embracing a new gender identity uh, for listeners who might not understand the difference? What a great question. Well, if back in the day, back in the day, we called ourselves female. That term is antiquated today. But back in the 80s, 70s and 80s, we called ourselves female impersonators, which was always strange to me. I never really understood it, but that's what we called ourselves because I never felt like I was impersonating a female. So it never made any sense. And when I was working as a showgirl, when I was lip syncing and working at the Baton and Lacage and places like that, the girls that I worked with all did people like they they performed as Liza Minnelli or Cher or Bette Midler. And I never did that. I was, <laughs> I was taping, remember little tape recorders? Remember you pushed record and play? Remember those things? I would tape off of my, this is how insane I am. I would tape off of my television monologues from old movies, like that monologue that Betty Davis has in All About Eve or the end monologue of Sunset Boulevard. I would tape it then give it to the DJ and tack a song like I am what I am or something on the end of it. I was insane. And I would get up and lip sync to the, these words and then sing the song. It was just ridiculous. People looked at me like I was crazy. So female impersonator never made any sense to me, but that's what we called ourselves. Most of the women that I worked with 
lived this way. These nothing came off. We surgically enhanced our bodies, so nothing came off. But I did work with people. In fact, one of my best friends lived as a male presenting human and loved that. He, he would be he during the day and she at night. And back then, that was radical. Today, it's, you know, Frank is Frank and Carol is Carol. I mean, that's just the way it, nobody cares now. But back in the day, that was big. That was a, a big deal. Well, maybe some uh, Republicans in Tennessee care, but otherwise. Maybe, are... maybe five of them do. Yeah, they're busy at home writing. But I think back then, female impersonator was a job and gender identity and expression was uh, was your life. I think that was really, if you're going to put anything in containers, I think those would be the containers. I've maintained, and perhaps I'm wrong, that the concept of gender identity and transgenderism has evolved dramatically in the last 50 years, in part because of what is possible medically mm -hmm. and physically, mm -hmm. right? Um, that it really didn't exist or only existed in small pockets because people didn't realize the possibility was there to be who they felt they should be. Whereas now, of course, it still is quite expensive, but it's available. And therefore, in some sense, the trans community is doing right now what the gay and lesbian community did in the 70s and 80s. And as Barney Frank says, that's why this political upheaval we're going through is that most people don't know a trans person. And so they're reacting the way they reacted against gays and lesbians 50 years ago. Do you agree about the evolution of that identity or am I off base with that? I don't think you're off base at all. I think that's exactly right. And I think that I just wrote a post on my Facebook and got a lot of pushback about it uh, on what an ally was and what they needed to do and how they needed to behave. And I got a lot of stuff from our own community, people saying, don't tell people how to be and act. And I said, uh, I, no, here's what you need to do, period. Because I think it's changed. I think that gender identity has changed. I think that the, the and I think in order for an ally to be an ally, you can't just sit in your house and use the word. You have to get to know us. You know, you said something earlier about stepping into other people's lives, you know, trying to do that as best you can, and that empathetic people hopefully practice doing that. And my whole thing has always been stay the hell out of my shoes. Stay out of my shoes, honey. They're my shoes. It took me a long time to afford these freaking shoes. Stay the hell out of them because I don't need you to walk for me. I need you to walk with me. That's empathy. So I think that's what people and allies need to practice. And you can't do that unless you get to know us. Well, it's going to take time, but I'm an optimist that we'll get there. I agree with you. You indicated that when economic necessity led you to become a high-priced sex worker for a few years in the 80s, you found it surprisingly easy. And it all had to do with, <laughs> with acting. Why was it so easy for you? <laughs> oh, God, you're going to hate my answer. Uh, how do I say this? Cis men, no offense, are basically stupid. They're basically, they're, because of what they've been taught, they're not innately vapid. <laughs> but because of what they've been taught, there's a very short list of their responsibilities. Lead, make decisions, and uh, be the protector. That's basically the man's list. The female of our species list is much longer. Nurturer, caretaker, emotionally available, uh, vulnerable, kind, sensitive. compassionate, sensitive. I mean, the list is just huge. But yeah. men, it's basically, well, one, two, three, and now I'd like a drink, Bob. Oh, and a little mansplaining. Exactly. Right. <laughs> Telling us what's right and what's wrong. And so I found that if, <laughs> if I adhered to that list and allowed them to just check those things off, it, it was it was a night at the carnival. It was super simple. So, you know, maybe stupid is the wrong word. I think simple is probably a, a better word. That cis men are just sort of simple creatures. And again, I chalk that up to the way we treat gender identity. It's so ridiculous. It's so stupid. It's such a waste of time. My wife is constantly telling me, I don't care. I like we'll have the gender conversations. She's like, I don't care. You can call me an aardvark. I don't care. I, we need to figure out how to pay rent. That's much more important. Why are African-American people still enslaved? That's much more important than like 
you deciding how to treat me because you think I'm a lady. That's ridiculous. <laughs> um, you know, throughout your entire post-adolescent life, you've had a legion of lovers and tricks, both male and female. Over the past generation, you and Chris Ann Blankenship, a.k.a. Chrissy, uh, your high school best friend, reunited and became spouses twice. Um, how, how do you describe the underlying attractions you've had to members of both genders? You kind of did that a little bit earlier. And how did you and Chrissy ever find your way back to each other and make the commitment to each other that you have? And I realize you discussed in the book how there were difficulties along the way. People are people. That's a very large question you just asked. Uh, so I'll simplify it as best I can. I mean, the beginning part of that question is, again, you know, I don't know. I, 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 I don't know. I don't know how things happen. I don't know why things happen. And I don't know why I go towards those things that are unknown. I really, I wish I had an answer for that. I honestly don't know. I do think if I ever figured it out, my glasses keep fogging up. My glasses keep fogging up. I do, I do know that if I ever figured it out, I don't think I'd have the kind of life that I have right now. And my life is ridiculously blessed, insanely blessed. So I don't worry about those answers. As far as my wife is concerned, I think, I've never said this to her, but I think both of us had a plan early on when we first met. And we tucked it way in the back because there was a lot of stuff attached to it. But we had a plan. And we actually said to each other when we were in high school, we're never going to leave each other. Whoever we marry, they're going to have to deal with the other human. That's it. So we did say that. But I have a feeling there was something else going on from day one. And I think, because we're humans, it took us a while to give each other permission to say, why don't you just do the thing that you've always wanted to do and stop being an idiot? <laughs> you know, there's this book. I don't know if you've read it. I don't know the name of it, but it's written by a, a nurse who was a, a an end of an end of life nurse gave care to people who were ending their lives. They were transitioning, usually terminally ill or one thing or another. And she interviewed hundreds of her patients, and she wrote this list of things at the end of her book that all of her patients said were the top five things they regretted. And the number one thing that everyone said, like a lot of them said, I work too hard. I didn't take enough vacations. I didn't call my friends. I didn't talk to my children, you know, things that you expect. But the number one thing that every single person regretted was that they didn't do the thing they always wanted to do. They were too afraid. And that to me has been the foundation of my entire life without me ever knowing it. That somewhere in me, thank God, somewhere in me, no matter what was happening to me, some, even if it was being a hooker, something said, you know what? I think you should do it. I think you should do it. Be careful, but I think you should do it. Go ahead. Go. That's pretty amazing. There was a period when there was a two-year two or so separation between you and Chrissy. Was that around the time you decided to, quote-unquote, in her words, kill Scott? Was that the, the source of that friction? Hmm. I think that separation was necessary for both of us. I needed to figure out how to navigate this body. And I couldn't do it with her around. And she needed to figure out how to navigate how she felt about me in this body. And we couldn't do that together. We needed to do separate work. I think that's good for couples sometimes because couples need to be individuals. So I think that's what happened. And in some ways, she went through the same process Mimi did in a more abbrevi abbreviated fashion. Absolutely. And you know, the you're, you're absolutely right. And then the difference was that in order for us to be in a love relationship that required, you know, physicality, she had to deal with how she felt about gender, identity, sexual uh, behavior, sexual identity. She had a lot of stuff. Bod bodies. See, but I had, because I had, you know, been with everybody except you, 
like I had everybody. <laughs> Not yet. That I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that I just, you know, it, that wasn't a thing for me. I didn't, but oh my God, I'm in love with a woman. That was, I was like, I'm in love with a woman. That makes perfect sense to me. So I didn't have to go through that. That she had to go through herself. So, you know, when you made the decision to stop dressing up as a female impersonator and to begin going out in the world dressed as a woman all the time, that was pretty damn dangerous, wasn't it? Yes, as it is today. Yes, it wasn't. There was a time when things sort of um, relaxed is the, the only word I can think of. And that lasted about 10 or 15 years. And now we're right back where we started. It's becoming illegal again in some states. Tennessee, I can't set foot in Tennessee. They can throw me in jail. Um, the, the de- they're called decency laws and they're bringing them back. And so it's just as dangerous today. It feels to me like it's simply choosing scapegoats and reenacting the 70s and Anita Bryant and all of that. But it's simply because you're an easy target. Yes, because we have the least power. But again, it's also part of that coming out process. As more and more transgender people come out and more and more non-trans people have trans friends, the acceptance level will presumably and hopefully grow the way it did with lesbians and gays. And I mean, right now we're 75% of the country supports same-sex marriage. And yet there's still this politicization and this, you know, demonization going on because it's an apt target, an easy target for certain groups. As true as that statistic may be, most of those people don't vote. There's a very small percentage of our country that actually has a political voice. That's the problem. The problem is not, are people on our side? Of course they're on our side. But the people who are the loudest in the room are the craziest. Remember, the thing you say in the loudest is the thing you need you need to hear the most. So the people that are in the most pain, that have that are suffering the largest, they're the ones that are screaming. Look at the people in our own government. That Marjorie Taylor Greene and that Lauren Boebert and that Matt Gates. These people are suffering. They are unhappy, angry, grief-stricken, resentful, vengeful human beings. And they are loud. And they're the only ones that we can hear. You don't think they're just using it as a device that helps them gain power from that group? Absolutely not. I don't believe that's true at all. No, I think that that is the way they feel. And they want you to feel that way. See, because if you feel that way, they're right. That's why they write this confusion, remember, of faith and fact. If two plus two is four and I know it's four and I can prove it, if you don't understand that, that's disturbing to me. Because then where is the world? Where is where is our foundation? We stand on nothing if, if you don't believe in science and what's right and wrong. So they believe they're... Uh, Philosophy and ideology has turned into facts and figures. And so they then that way, see, remember, Mike, then they don't have to deal with their shame. They don't have to self-evaluate because nothing's wrong with them. They don't have to look at their anger or their rage or their pain. Everything is outward. Here's what you need to do. Here's how we're going to fix things. I don't want to see anybody free and happy. I don't want to see anything off the norm. I don't want to go off script. I don't want to turn the page over. And you're not going to either. Damn it. It's applying blame. Yeah. You know, you spent a year or maybe more living on the streets of Chicago. I mean, essentially homeless. Um, And to me, that's almost unimaginable until your friend Ginger found you and brought you back, as you described it, among the living. Um, How did you manage that? And were you working in a club or hooking up with tricks during that time? In other words, what what was your life like for that year? That's very difficult to explain unless you actually, you know, it was funny because Chrisanne always asked me during that time, why didn't you call me? Like, why didn't you just just go to the phone and call? I would take you into my, and she had a great job. She was making a lot of money. And I never really knew the answer to that until I started to write the book. And what I found out was I had buried all of my friends, well, most all of them. A few survived, but very little. The trauma, I really didn't understand trauma. The trauma was so large in me. It was most of who I was at the time. I was literally a walking time bomb of trauma. 
And so the only way I could deal with that was to self-abuse and treat myself what I believed was as badly as my friends were being treated. So I packed a suitcase and I left. And I said, no more home, no more bed, no more food. You're on your own. You got to figure this out all by yourself. So it felt a lot like, you could have think I've been saying, but it felt a lot like I was living in a story. It felt real, but it felt a lot like this book had opened and I sort of climbed in this book and became a statistic. And when you're homeless, you disappear. That's the other thing. I didn't exist, which was perfect. It's exactly what I wanted. People passed right by me. They knew I was there. They knew I was hungry. They knew I needed money. They knew I, I couldn't think. I couldn't rationalize. I couldn't put things together. Chris, I would say, why didn't you call me? I'm like, I didn't know what a phone was. I didn't make sense to me. How? You, you didn't have friends or talk to people or socialize. It was all just existing. I was by myself with a gray suitcase walking around, literally walking around. And occasionally I would get hungry, so I would find food. Or occasionally I would need to get on a bus so I would find money. Literally, that's what it was. It was a moment to moment, hour to hour existence. It's incredible. It is incredible in the sense that like, I remember waking up when I saw Ginger. That's what was so strange was I was just walking and all of a sudden I went, what the, oh, and like I woke up. I was like, oh, hey girl. She was like, what? Get over here. Like the <laughs> panic in her face. And I remember thinking, I wonder why she's so panicked. She looks really stressed. So basically it was a one year dream. Pretty much. Or nightmare. Or nightmare. Right. But I was, yeah, walking asleep. So what prompted you to begin using heroin? Uh, one of my other interviewees, Stu Fenton, you know, was a former sex worker as well uh, in Australia and a cult model, if you know what those were. They were kind of glossy male muscle, muscle models. Um, he's now an addiction and rehab therapist who had been a crystal meth addict for a number of years, had numerous, you know, psychotic breaks and passing, passing out and waking up in emergency rooms. And he went back to school to obtain his credentials and, as I said, became a, a counselor. He told me that 85% of the people he meets may never entirely escape their addictions. What finally prompted you to enter rehab? And how hard was the battle to become and remain sober? Well, I remember I was doing an enormous amount of cocaine and crystal meth and heroin. And um, I remember I was in my apartment alone. Most of my friends had left me. Um, it was right at the beginning of the AIDS crisis. So people had just started to get sick with this weird cancer. And I went into my bathroom and I looked up, like there was the sink and I looked up and I remember thinking, when did I buy that, that ugly painting? What is this? Like the picture of Dorian Gray. Why would I buy that? And then as I was getting closer, it moved as I moved. And I realized I was looking at my own reflection. My hair had fallen out and my eyes were like a yellow green. And my, uh, you know, my skin was sort of a tingy orange and my lips were snow white. It was just, I was unrecognizable. I had, I weighed maybe, and I'm thin anyway. I had weighed maybe 90 pounds. I was emaciated. My, you know, I was sunken. It was just, I'd never seen anything like, I was unrecognizable to myself. And I said, I, I, I'm dying. I'm dying. And I didn't want to die. So I got, I got the phone book. This is back in the day when there were, remember phone books? I got the phone book and went through the yellow pages. Hello, good morning. Went through the yellow pages. Number please. And I looked under recovery centers and I called one. This will kill you. I called one and I said, I need help. <laughs> Where are you? I'm coming down immediately. I need help. And the woman on the other end said, okay, all right. Um, when was the last time you used? And I said, like an hour ago. And she said, oh, we can't take you. We can't take you until you're 24 hours sober. And I said, 
girl, in 24 hours, I'm going to be dead. So can you, can you recommend some place that and she was of absolutely no help to me? I called three different places and they all said the same thing to me. We can't take you because you're high. And I thought to myself, I don't understand how this is helpful at all. You people. So I went downstairs to my um, best friend's apartment. We lived um, two floors from each other. And I knocked on the door and I said, you, you have to help me because I'm going to die. And she said, yeah, you are. So she got me sober, walked me around and took me to my first um, recovery meeting, a meet, a 12 step meeting. And that's what saved my life. And then I went into recovery after I was sober for 24 hours. Then I went into recovery, a recovery house, I guess is what I mean. And my guess is they, they must believe that, you know, they, you got, they, you got to show you want it or something. I mean, why? I have no idea. I mean, I would love to speak to your friend now. It's, I'm sure it's different now. This was 40, you know, years ago. This was a very long time. So I, I hope it's different now, but back then that's what they told me. Now, among your other uh, sources of heartache, I lost count, but in reading your memoir twi <laughs> twice, by the way. Uh, it, oh, my it, God. <laughs> well, I it'd been a while. I figured I needed to come up with the right questions, so I went through it again. Um, it seemed you held numerous gay men dying of AIDS in your arms in their final moments. And then you were diagnosed with AIDS yourself, uh, leading doctors to think one night you might not still be alive the next morning. How did you find the internal strength to deal with each of those tragedies? I mean, forget all the other things we've already discussed. This in itself, I had friends die of AIDS, of course, but never as close, to, never with them in my arms. So how did you do that? It's still part of my trauma. It's still, I have PTSD because that's true. When we had the pandemic and we went into lockdown, I, I barely made it through that time. That's when I wrote the book because I was out of my mind. And Chrisanne came up to me. I was sitting right here where I'm sitting right now, looking out the window. And she said, hey, why don't you, why don't you write your book? And I went, I don't want to write a book. And she's like, no, 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 no. Just pretend no one's going to read it. Just write shit down. Just start writing shit down. And I was like, okay, I have nothing else to do. So that book actually saved my sanity because I still reverberate with an enormous amount of grief and loss. And you would think that that would make me like some kind of, like if you prick me, I just burst out into hysterical tears. The opposite is true. When shit goes down, I go, I turn into Betty Davis. I just go, I just shut down, but I get shit done. I get like, I know what to do. I know where to go. This is what we're going to, this is how we're going to clean it up. This is, I go into super organized mind. So that's what it did to me and for me, probably. So if I, if I enter trauma, I need to come to you. That's exactly right. <laughs> I'm really good in a crisis. But it also afforded me, I think, a chance to be able to say there was one time in my life when I didn't go towards that light. And that was when I got diagnosed. Because what I saw was what I remembered, which was I'm going to die. I'm going to die horribly. And I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die fast. And I gave up. It was the one time I gave up. And I was in a little ball, this is a true story, curled up in my bed, weeping uncontrollably for day three. And Chrisanne walked in and she said, okay, look, I understand. And, and I don't understand because I don't know what you're going through. But I'll tell you something, if you're gonna curl up in a little ball and die, you're not going to do it in front of me. So you're either going to leave or I'm going to leave. And she closed the door. And I thought, I got to stand up. And I did one thing at a time, literally. I got up on my own two feet, physically. And then I said, now I have to walk into the kitchen. And I walked into the kitchen. Now I have to make something to eat because I've got to feed myself. And I did that. And I literally did one little task at a time. And strangely, that's how I became an activist. I remember you describing hearing that screaming voice down the hallway 
do that whole night. And then you referred to that to everybody when you came out of your fever the next day. And they're like, what voice are you talking about? What do you think got you through that evening? Were you on the cocktail already or not? No, no, no. I was, no, this was right before the, the cocktail was invented, right before we went into what they called clinical trials, where they, we all sort of volunteered to take these pills to see what they would do. Things got better and I started to take charge. And Chris Han really took care of everything in the beginning of the crisis because I couldn't do anything. I was too frightened and too upset. And finally, she came home one day. I'll never forget this. She came home one day and she said, I can't do it anymore. And I went, what? You can't do what? She said, I can't. All I'm doing is seeing the word AIDS. Like I go to the bathroom and I see AIDS on the bathroom walls. Like I can't do this. You have to do something. I'm done. And so I had to take over. And then somewhere in the middle, I got very sick, very fast and started to die, literally started to die. And they put me in the hospital and I was dying. And one night during one of my fever dreams, I heard someone screaming for help down the hall. And then, like you said, I woke up the next day and I was fine. I had no fever. My red blood cell count was up. My white blood cell count was up. My T cells went up. It was the strip, and the doctor sat on the edge of my bed, and I said, "What happened?" He said, "I don't know. I have no idea. I don't know." I went, "What do you mean you don't know? You're a doctor person. How do you not know?" He's like, "I, I don't know." And then I talked about the guy down the hall, and he said, "Alex, you're on the floor alone. There's no one down the hall. There's never been anybody down the hall." And I said, no, 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 no. I heard a very, very loud voice screaming for how he said, no, 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 you didn't. That was a fever dream. Almost divined. Well, that's what I think. I definitely had a fever. I was definitely in a dream state. I'll give him that. That voice was too clear. And what that voice was, was a reflection of my own screaming for help. And I think what happened, <laughs> because medical science can't figure it out is that something heard me and helped me. And I never forgot that. And I remember saying to myself, because I was fine, and literally as if nothing had happened. And Christiane had called my mother. This will give you a little insight into my mother and her very dark sense of humor. Christiane had called my mother and said, she's dying, you need to come the night before. You need to pack and you need to get over here. My mother, who was devoid of any kind of emotion, went, all right. And then the next day, Chrisanne got on the phone and said, never mind, forget it, don't. You don't have to come if you don't want to, because she's fine. Everybody was so happy. She's fine, she's great, like nothing happened. And my mother says, without missing a beat, what are you talking about, I packed. <laughs> you got an opportunity to study method acting with the incomparable Uta Hagen, I believe, and then to compete for serious acting roles after that for the first time. Until that point, you'd kind of been laughed at or referred to only by what sex is she really. I found your struggle to make it from one side of the room to the other to be extremely moving. Can you just tell us how that happened? Well, first, let me make just a slight correction. Uta Hagen didn't teach method acting. She taught what she called sense memory acting. Gotcha. Which is basically... Uh, I'm going to pick up this coffee cup, but the next time I'm going to pick it up, it's going to be hot. It's going to be scolding hot. And so then you, oh my God. So that's what she taught. And then she went into manifestations of childhood stuff and things like that. And how do you bring that into the scene? So that's basically what she taught. I was invited into her class to audit. I didn't get a chance because I was such a jerk at that time. I was so filled with ego. I was frightened and scared, but I was still thought I was pretty great. I thought I was just kind of great. And I really, I had heard of this Uta Hagen lady, but I didn't, I had, she saw something in me because she was a genius. And she said, um, I'd love to have you be part of the class, but you're going to be part of the auditors, which means you'll sit back here. You'll be able to take notes. You can ask one question her class at the end of the class and one question only. And there were about 10 of us that did that, that auditioned, but didn't get into the class, but she wanted, she, she saw something. Else. So th that's how I participated with Uda. And I have about six or seven notebooks that are about that thick, that are filled with notes that I still have and that I still refer to. That's how brilliant she was. 
But that's not actually what changed stuff, because I'll be honest with you, people still treat me like <laughs> they still treat me like I'm some drag queen. They still treat me like and I don't even even mean drag queen in the sense of like RuPaul's drag race, which are these women are treated like they're icons. I mean, like I'm some dude like I'm, you know, your 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 uncle Fred in a gown. That's the way some. Hollywood people still treat me. They still think transcentric stories are a niche and nobody really cares. They still think that what we are is a philosophy. They still don't understand it. They said, because remember, Hollywood is run by the patriarchy. It's a microcosm of the human experience. Just because it's Hollywood, people think, ooh, hippies and liberals, oh my, that's not true at all, honey. These people are money making, Armani suit wearing, one road towards success, which is paved with money, mofos. That's who they are. So they don't want to see the brown trans lady. They couldn't care less about what I have to say. What happened was I shifted myself. I shifted my own spirit. And I said, okay, I got it. Now, I understand what you think of me. So I'm not going to change the way you think. That's impossible. What I have to do is change the way I navigate what you think of me. So I did. I began to walk in and I saw in their eyes, oh my God, here he comes. And I did the audition and I was as kind as possible. And I got out and I went to the next one. And I auditioned for things that I liked, that were interesting, that were funny, that brought me joy, that were important, that mattered. I started auditioning for more trans roles. I started to take myself just a little bit, not too much, but a little bit more serious as an artist and that I had something to say and that it mattered. That's what began to shift things. So both a sense of self-esteem and presumably somewhat the environment around you because there are more roles and there's more of a recognition of this as being part of life than there was before. That's right. And let's be clear, there's more roles because there's more trans people making more noise. <laughs> right. That's the reason. And that's why we need allies. We need people to go, we would like to see more transgender stories. Right. That's what needs to happen in, in order for those, those portals to grow. So I want to ask you a couple final questions. How did you come up with your signature group greeting? Hello, humans. <laughs> I don't know. How did that happen? Your questions stump me. Um, I don't know. I honestly don't know. I think I, in, I didn't invent the word humans, but I think I started using the word humans because I got tired of gender specificity. I think that's what happened. I'm not really sure when that happened, to be honest. Next, would you tell us about your collaborative entertainment company with Chrissy, Schmengi Inc.? So Schmengi is a gibberish word, which means everything and anything which I made up when I was very, very little. If I didn't know the word to something, it's still true today. Like, bring me the Schmengi or hand me the Schmengi. Or do you remember that movie starring John Schmengi and Carol Schmengi? Remember that? <laughs> so it can mean anything. And when we, were, when we invented the production company, we wanted a name that was going to be all inclusive. So I suggested, well, let's call it a gibberish word. And that way, everybody's invited to the party. So that's where Schmengi Inc. came from. And we are devoted to telling the story of the marginalized. That is our dream. The white cis patriarchy is great and we, we love them as a rule, but we're not interested in telling their stories. They have enough portals to go through. So we are for the LGBTQIA plus story, the handicapable story, the women of color story, um, the teen story, the transgender ally story. So any story that isn't the mainstream and doesn't assimilate to the ideology that you have to be white, cis, and male to, to be normal. That's what we stand for. And are you, find, are you finding that there's slow traction in getting some re reception out there for this? Very slow. <laughs> it's very slow. But, you know, I married a human who, whose patience is not her virtue. And I told her that going into this thing, I said, you're going to have to really practice the thing you hate the most because it takes forever to get things done in Hollywood. Strangely, academia is the same way. But anyway, and I'm a pretty patient person. But even I get to the point where I'm like, could you hurry this up a little? But yeah, it takes time. It takes time. 
And my final question is a couple of months ago, you traveled to New York City and you referred on Instagram to a mystery project you were working on. And I haven't teed you up for this, so I don't know if, if I can ask about this yet or not, but has that materialized and are you able to tell us anything about it yet? It has materialized. Uh, I can tell you part of it. I can tell you that I am working on an autobiographical show that's based on the book that has now been turned into an original musical. I didn't write the words of music. A man named um, Andre Katrini is writing the words of the music. It's directed by Joanne Gordon, who also helped me write the book. And there are additional lyrics by Chris Ann. Um, our production company is part of the producing team. There's another producing team that I can't talk about right now. And that's what we're doing. And that's all I can tell you. That's great. Well, you know, I enjoyed your book immensely. I have an agent and I'm Good. writing my own and I'm encountering writer's block and <laughs> all the stuff that you went through. Um, you know, how to tell a story and keep an audience attentive, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. But I, so therefore understand the challenges you faced and how how hard that must have been. This has been a wonderful experience. I'm glad to finally have had the chance and I hope we get the opportunity to meet in person at some point. Uh, me too, my friend. I will continue following you and staying in touch. And once again, thanks. Absolutely. Thank you so much, my love. Bye-bye, Alexander. Bye, friend. The podcast you've been listening to is produced by Mike Balaban and Tom Walker, recorded and researched by Mike Balaban, with editing and music from Henry Leigh.